0: The Art Newspaper Weekly podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, where the historic and modern are equally valued. Hello, and welcome to the Art Newspaper Weekly podcast. I'm Ben Luke. This week's podcast is a special edition from the Freeze Art Fair in London's Regents Park, and I'm standing in the entrance to Freeze Masters, and from where I stand I can see some of the prime real estate of the fair, the most prominent booths which can easily be spotted by the top collectors. In my eyeliner are the Hauser and Wirth and Moretti stand with a Richard Archfager orgy that sold for two point eight million dollars at Wednesday's VIP opening. It's next to a sixteenth century Florentine ceramic. I can also see A Still Life with Apples by Paul Gauguin on the Aquavella stand. And near that is a Picasso bull's head. Later in the podcast, we'll hear the thoughts of Valeria Napoleone, the Italian-born and London-based collector.
1: In art, it's not about money. It's about having an impact
0: and I also talked to two artists of very different kinds and at very different stages of their career. Peter Blake, the octogenarian linchpin of British pop art, whose studio has been recreated here at Freeze Masters, and Ed Fornieles, a young and much-in-demand artist whose show in East London is time to coincide with the fair. But first, I'm joined by Melanie Gurlis, the former art market editor at the Art Newspaper, who now writes a weekly column for the Financial Times. Melanie, Britain's had its credit rating downgraded, The economy is incredibly jittery uh, ahead of Brexit. How has the art world responded?
2: I think as we often see in such situations is that people leave the problems outside the tent. Everything inside seems fairly buzzy and buoyant. There's some very expensive works on sale and people are buying them.
0: So you've been speaking to the dealers. Do they seem quite buoyant, quite chipper?
2: They do. I mean, yesterday was VIP day for both the Freeze Fairs, and people are normally chipper on the first day. They've got to keep up appearances. Having said that, uh, across both fairs, you know, we saw Johnny Van Heften at Freeze Masters was pretty bouncy because he sold three Dutch Old Masters uh, on the opening day. And in Freeze London, which is where sales are always faster, uh, there was also a buzz. David Zwerner said that he sold his booth out by noon for the first time ever.
0: So, Freeze, as you say, there's a there's a buzz immediately on that opening day, but where does it rank in terms of the international art fairs? Where is it in the league table, as it were?
2: I think this week has proved it's one of the two most important fairs in the world. I got a very similar feeling here yesterday as I did at Art Basel in June, which is that there are definitely too many fairs. People are very tired and can't do everything. But if you're going to be somewhere, you are going to be at Art Basel in June or at Frieze in London in October. A huge number of people were here and important people, collectors, museums, really from around the world,
0: do you get a sense, I mean, a lot of people I've spoken to seem to think there's a certain conservatism in some of the booths this year. Is that your sense?
2: I think that's true, yes. I think what we were saying beforehand, actually, I think these problems with the economy, even though they don't seem to have an immediate effect, they have very gradually changed the tune, uh, certainly, of Freeze London. I think instead of seeing young, hot, new artists, there's quite a lot of old feminist women and political art which you know it's not necessarily conservative but it's safer
0: it's safer in terms of these are artists who are on the map who have a certain reputation already they're collected by museums and therefore they're a safe bet
2: exactly they have some art historical validation behind them
0: i think your point is proved by the fact that when you look at Gagosian's stand, if you remember, I think it was probably three years ago, there were maybe I think four Jeff Koons sculptures, multi-million dollar works, uh, guarded by security guards. Mm-hmm. It was no, they were leaving us in no doubt that they were really putting their choice items on the on the on the fair booth. But this year they've gone for a sort of a show of works on paper. And I sort of thought this was somehow a sort of microcosm of that sort of effect that you were just discussing.
2: I do think that's a fair point. And actually, if you think about Gagosian, he's also, you know, he had Carsten Hurler's games as well. So maybe, yes, some of the fun and the bling has come out. The other thing about works on paper, and this, you know, other works have been selling for millions, but I assume works on paper are cheaper. And maybe. The dealers are appealing to a crowd that is perhaps not so free with their money.
0: Okay. So, what are the biggest sales so far?
2: Well, we have had some seven figure sales already. Well, galleries are reporting seven figure sales already. Um, uh, Rauschenberg has gone from Ropak Gallery and Freeze London for 1.5 million. Uh, Zwerner has, in fact, sold a Jeff Koons, so there are still some shiny Koons around uh, at uh, two point seven five. But actually, it's a Koons that has uh, references old masters, so maybe it's a bit different from the uh, the Tweety pies. Um, and Art Schwager has sold at Hauser and Worth and Moretti in freeze masters for two point eight million. So there are some very high level sales. Um, there are also some lower level sales. I mean, uh, there have been sales at all levels. Um, Pace Gallery has a. Uh, female artist called Louie Hollowell, 16 works on paper, have sold for $6,500 each, and that was also very quickly done. So there are at all levels at the moment, albeit from the big-name galleries.
0: Now, in your estimation, are art fairs a good place to buy art?
2: I think art fairs are a great place if you buy art anyway. Art fairs are a great place to see the people you know, remind yourself of what the galleries are doing, compare the prices of, you know, maybe what you own already. Um, most people, I think, prefer to do the physical transactions outside of a very public, open art fair. If you're a new buyer, I think it's a great place to come and see a lot of the art again you might be better off talking to people a lot before you actually make that public transaction but clearly it's a very good way to see hundreds of different types of art within a day
0: but for instance there's not a sort of fair premium that's put on top of certain artworks at head, uh, that might be on sale for a different price in, if you were to buy them from the gallery
2: I suspect there's a small premium, an art fair premium. Uh, but then, what's happening increasingly is that the art fair itself is becoming a piece of provenance. So maybe the art fair premium is acceptable. I don't know, but I, I do think there's probably a little premium, yes.
0: So we should explain that further. So basically, when when people are when galleries are selling art, as they list the places where a work has appeared. Um art fairs appear in that list?
2: Increasingly, certain art fairs are appearing in lists, and why not? You know, auctions appear in lists. Why shouldn't art fairs? But it's it's something I've noticed gradually happening over time.
0: Now, often the health of the art market is judged not just on the fair, but by the auctions. Now, we're coming out on the Friday, and I believe that there is an auction on Friday night which might tell us more about just how healthy the art market is. Can you say... To what extent auctions are a bellwether for the health of the art market?
2: Auctions are definitely a bellwether because the, everything is public. The prices are public, there's a sense of at least security in knowing what is selling and at around what level. This year is quite interesting actually it because normally the auctions are held a little earlier in the week and you can see a palpable effect so if a record was made for a Basquiat for example, you're more likely to sell your Basquiat from your booth uh, whereas this year you're right well there's an auction tonight actually Thursday night at Sotheby's and then a major one also at Christie's tomorrow night where we have this huge Francis Bacon so in a way those will happen although the fair will still be open the VIPs will probably have left but I do think there are good indication of the general health of the market because even talking to 300 gallerists you don't know for certain how things are going whereas at an auction at least you see what has sold for how much tonight.
0: Melanie thank you very much and listeners to the podcast can find out exactly what happened at those auctions on theartnewspaper.com and by reading Melanie's column in the FT. Now for the first of our artist interviews. Ed Fornieles is a leading figure in the first generation of digitally native artists, for whom mobile technologies and the internet are natural tools with which to explore contemporary life. Fornieles has just opened an exhibition at the Carlos Ishikawa Gallery in East London. There, he characteristically uses a range of technological tools and online platforms, from virtual reality, or VR, to artificial intelligence, to reflect on the obsessions and dilemmas of our time. I went to the gallery to meet him. Ed, we're sitting in your exhibition at Carlos Ishikawa in the East End, and I've noticed that this show is very compartmentalised in the sense that there's five different strands of your practice that are on view here. Can you explain why you took that approach and what's in the show? Um, So
3: all of the works have been produced over the last year and a half, and I think what they have in common is their that capacity to perhaps step outside of the art world in some ways, um, and
0: to be taken on or progressed in other environments. So they're sort of propositions for something beyond an art object or an artwork. They they can be re- applied in the real world in some way.
3: Yeah, like a lot of the
0: works I think are
3: starting points to something, and they'll be continued within my own practice, but um, can also be sort of uh, utilized by other parties or. Um, perhaps are just simply imaginative propositions and ways of looking at things or
0: disrupting ways of looking at things. The first work, when, when You Walk In, which is called Babble, directly refers to a sort of very shrill moment in our current culture, in the sense that it deals with the idea that we all live in bubbles and we are in some way uh, protected from alternative views. Can you say why you tried to tackle that and, and how you've tackled it? So, um,
3: Babel essentially is a conversational platform, um, a specifically a political conversation platform that uses somebody's data, um, to profile them essentially and to put them into conversation with somebody with a radically different view or even maybe a slightly different view. Um, so it's trying to generate this conversation that perhaps is prevented by the geographical and media spaces that we exist in. And I don't think that's necessarily a new thing. Like, I think that's always been present. Um, but it's been compounded certainly by, um, the online environments that we inhabit. Um, so I suppose it's an attempt to try and counteract that and try to produce a space that is, produces productive conflict, um, in some ways.
0: It's interesting because one of the things that struck struck me about that work is that you you thought that audio was a good way to circumvent some of the sort of trappings of the online space in the sense that if you put two people together and they don't have a broader audience, then there might be less capacity for trolling or for a sort of online violence.
3: Yeah, I think, um, yeah, it's to try to think structurally, to think about what will produce um a productive conversation. And it's, you know, I think trolling and sort of cathartic release is valuable and fine on some degrees, but it's also just trying to think about what what can sort of counter that and what how the architecture of the site um can produce something different. So for instance, you start off with just audio. Um, and then when you trust the person you might be able to release the video, like we're looking at things where, um, if somebody is trying to dominate the conversation too much, their volume is decreased very slightly over time. Um, so, I mean, we're still in an experimental stage, and I myself don't have the capacity or the funding to sort of implement this in the in the world. Um, so, in a sense, uh, it existing in the art gallery is uh, very much um, a seed or something. It's 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 for somebody else to take up. Or to be negotiated
0: by other people. When we actually, when you introduced me to that work a moment ago, you you said to me, I'm not sure if it's an artwork. Does that matter? Does it matter whether what you produce is art?
3: No, I don't think it matters too much. I think that um, I'm interested in the edges of art where they begin to fall apart um, in themselves. And I think that, you know, there's some ambiguity that's lost when you are so literal within, within a statement, but another kind of ambiguity is able to open up in the way that it inhabits in the world or the way that it exists as an idea within a, a personal network of people.
0: On that subject, there's a work around the corner here from where we're sitting, which is called Me Friends, where you've created artificial intelligences, essentially, these characters. Can you tell us about that process of developing those characters? Because it's quite involved, isn't it?
3: Yes, yeah, so over six months, we had a team of conversationists working my like Facebook who were very open about being a team. And Are they what, sort of
0: hired actors?
3: Um, a lot of them were found on Gumtree and Craigslist, but they were normally um, graduate recent graduates or people who wrote like kind of clickbait articles and stuff. Okay. Um, but like an interesting group of people, um, and they sort of offered these different conversation modes. So that could be a shoulder to cry on. Uh, that could be brainstorming um could be flirtatious. Um and then people would sort of have these conversations and we created th- you know thousands of thousands of conversations which created um a huge amount of data I suppose that we can then produce these sort of a limited AI bots but it you know they are limited and they're kind of inept. Um, and I think it says more about their lack than their capacity to fulfill the needs of friendship.
0: One thing that occurs to me looking at a lot of your work is that there seems to be an implicit commentary, you might feel it's more explicit, about humans uh, as sophisticated beings in a world surrounded by technologies that are trying to emulate them or trying to um, usurp them. And in a way, it it seems to me that your work is actually very human in the sense it tends to reinforce human values or reinforce human uh, intelligence.
3: Yeah, I don't know. It, it's hard to say, but I think it's about somehow negotiating your place in the world and thinking about the tools by which you might do that. So um, the work that we're sort of sitting at the moment is a, is based around the role playing game book that I've developed, where you sort of, you play yourself in a, apocalyptic and post apocalyptic scenarios. But the the kind of aim for that is to you know is to provide a space where people can simulate and test themselves and begin to ask questions, both on an ethical, on a conceptual and emotional level. Uh, And I think, yeah, I don't know, that's the main line of investigation at the moment.
0: An aspect of this work is this idea that it's sort of similar, it's similar to the Dungeons and Dragons games, these sort of um, games where you enter and you're given a series of possibilities and that takes you on a journey. You seem to latch on to aspects of popular culture or aspects of particular areas of popular culture, which you then apply to a kind of wider sort of social or political idea. Is that fair?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, what's popular is powerful and if you use platforms or um, ways of communicating that people somehow implicitly used to, it's a lot easier to then begin having a conversation or developing something. You know, and it's so easy to retask and repurpose uh to different ends
0: um rather than like completely reinvent or reimagine. Another work in the show is Funilia, in which you imagine the sort of invisible entities of our lives like uh, currencies and corporations as sort of Yamagotchi style avatars. Tell me about that project. Um well that work
3: so I worked with a uh, team of designers in Montreal and we were looking at uh what can sort of provoke or communicate um empathy. Um and so we end up looking at the dimensions of uh children, babies actually, which seem to have the most response. So we developed these Japanese type avatars, like Tamagotchi as you said, that um could communicate in a very direct way, in a in the sense in a way that uses things we've evolved to understand. So that's body language and that's facial expressions. And then we've taken these forms, and you can feed any kind of data into them. So at the moment, we've mainly been currencies and companies, but equally do rainfall or whatever you wanted to. And in that, so when when you walk into the gallery, at the moment, you see the emotion, the the state of the com- company based on its uh, stock market price. So. You can see when it's going down, it becomes depressed and, and physically fragile, and when it's going up, it becomes buoyant and happy and expressive. And at the moment, we're we're looking at News Corp, right? And it looks a bit sad, frankly. Yeah, News Corp over the last six months seems to be uh, on a slight depression—not huge depression—but what, what I find peculiar about it is just by walking into the gallery on a semi-regular basis at the moment, like I'm instantly aware of how News Corp is doing in these set parameters. But it also begins to ask questions like, what what happens when you can have a direct emotional relationship with infrastructure? Like, you know, is that a healthy thing? I'm not too sure. Like, I think it's hopefully asking questions about that.
0: Is it also about trying to visualise a very uncontrollable element of our lives in the sense that, actually, it's quite important. The health of News Corp is quite important to the health of the whole market, for instance. And therefore... It can affect our everyday lives in imperceptible, in, in perhaps, ways, but, but, but ways which nonetheless do matter in the, in the broader scheme of things. Totally. So I think that's very
3: much the case, especially when you look at really big uh, structures. So, for instance, like GDP or currencies, how, you know, like a dip or like a depressive face can represent, um, you know, the loss of thousands of jobs uh, or the creation of, th- you know, uh, the creation of thousands of jobs. And it, yeah, it's like uh, these things that surround us and impact our lives on a daily basis and yet are kind of unseen and unthought about. Um, by supplying them a body, they can become a, a real presence. And I suppose that's what I'm interested in.
0: And is it right that when you were presenting uh, a show with the Fenelia characters in, it in Canada, uh, Brexit happened and uh, you were able to visualize the effect on Pound Sterling?
3: Yeah, so just before, I think it was quite buoyant and happy. And then I remember walking in, maybe it was the day or day after Brexit, but the, it just suddenly became sort of sick and was like lying on the floor barely able to breathe. And you know, and, and then that was a kind of an interesting moment where you, where you're suddenly struck by the, like, the impact of something. So kind of
0: untangible. This show has been timed to coincide with the opening of the Freeze Art Fair. So, does that matter to you as an artist? Is it is it something which resonates to you? I, I, oh, great, you know, the big collectors, lots of the museum directors and curators are going to be in town, or is it just like putting together any other show? I think that um I'm happy that I'm having
3: a show in a gallery, and it's great if anybody can come and see it. But, it, yeah, it's not something that's very present within... My thoughts. Uh, I think I'm too distracted with actually trying to put off. Like we did five projects for this show, and uh, we really were working down to like the very last moment before the opening. Um, and but I mean, anything that allows or um, facilitates or increases the capacity for a conversation and getting ideas
0: out there, I think, is a good thing. You've also shown within uh, the Freeze Art Fair, both I think in New York and in London. How does that affect how you plan the work? Because I imagine that you, you would have to take into account the fact that people's attention span might be smaller or that there'll be actually a broader audience over a shorter period of time, or maybe that doesn't come into your thoughts.
3: I think there are two strategies. One is to just not think about it, um, which because it is a terrible environment to show artwork. like You have absolute saturation and the emphasis is put primarily, I suppose, on... The of work or entertainment in some very broad sense, um, or you can engage with it and kind of engage with the mechanisms and sort of try to make a commentary, but it's a very sticky, dirty environment to do that in. Um, I personally think it's best not to think about it.
0: You've engaged with all sorts of elements of life on the internet, and one of the most renowned ways in which people use the internet is for porn. So can you tell me how you've you've addressed that issue? So, uh, the project's
3: called Truth Table, which is a VR project, and it, um, it tries to equally distribute lots of variables within porn. So that's, in this instance, that's body type, age, race, gender, and a host of other things. And you are in a POV, like you are within the position of a body having sex with somebody else, and your position changes every 20 seconds. Your body changes, their body changes, and the environment you're in changes. So, it's trying to sort of counteract, um, I suppose the environment that we normally exist in, which is very sort of prejudiced towards certain types. You develop very niche desires through clicking on certain things. So, like, you know, you might become obsessed with certain aesthetics, certain, uh, certain, certain elements that sort of, um, you feel desire towards. And by equally distributing all these variables uh, over a period of time, it's, I suppose, you're trying to rethink that environment and what would happen. I think it's not just true of pornography, it's true of everything. Much much larger culture from sort of films to advertising to what you might read to, I don't know,
0: everything. This, this show draws on the internet in all sorts of ways. Do you feel it has an overall... Uh, mood or message in the sense of a celebration or critique of the internet?
3: I think what is on offer here is a set of tools that could possibly be utilized by people. Um, and that's what I'm interested in. I'm not too sure if it's a celebration um, or critique, or lies somewhere perhaps in between, but hopefully um, it can open up some questions that are that can maybe reframe or recontextualise
0: our current environments. Ed, thanks yes. very much. Ed Fornielas' exhibition Seed continues at the Carlos Ishikawa Gallery until the 28th of October. Now, Valeria Napoleone has for the last 20 years been assembling a collection dedicated exclusively to women artists. As Freeze approached, our deputy art market editor, Anna Brady, went to meet her at her home in Kensington.
1: What's the most expensive piece in your collection? I have a cap in what I, what I spend for each work. And the cap, uh, I try to keep it in control because I don't want to think about money when I buy the work. You know, I don't want to think, oh, it's going to be. If I buy beyond a certain amount of money, I feel like, oh, it's going to go well. Is, is the art going to do well, or it, you make a decision more based on your reasoning than on your heart? So, if I if I keep my cat, I really I keep it very not spontaneous because there is a lot of research. But in a way, yes, spontaneous because it's my reaction to the work. I look at the other things. I look at my reaction. I look if the book makes me excited, uh, if I really connect to you know the language the and, uh, and the piece uh, and the praxis of the artist the prices have also increased because I remember when I started collecting you could buy really major work for four thousand dollars now probably shifted to 10 twelve well now you can find also for six 000, eight thousand dollars I just I say a painting you no, know, a large scale painting you know but 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 it's so hard because it goes so fast. That phase of the beginning, where the artist is selling for like four to six to ten, four to ten, is so short. Right away, the galleries don't do it. this such a considered job. They just as soon as they see that there is a market, they just right away they increase it. So and and it can go for a young artist can go up absolutely, absolutely. So this is why it relates to your question. Also, I'm looking more and more to middle-career artists, artists that have been known for ages for and they've been working for 20-plus years. And they have, most many times, they have the same price as young and hot, these hot and young artists. And for me, it's absurd. I say no to so many, even though I think that they are, they are clever, they are talented, I say no to so many offers of these young artists or like you know, I don't know, over thirty thousand for an artist, and it's just thirty thousand dollars a painting. Okay, it's a nice large painting for an artist who just started, probably the first, the, the second show, and it's so really I'm uh, I'm um, I'm very careful about that. Uh, so really, I mean, for me to look at artists who need the most my help, you know, uh, artists uh, there are a moment in their career where nobody else is looking. That's what I want to be, uh, where I want to enter. Artists who have been working for a while, for a long time, and are totally dismissed. That's because my, uh, uh, my involvement will, give, will, will have an impact. And all I do in life, in, in art, and in life in general, but it's my attitude, in art it's not about money, it's about having an impact. And being the most impactful in the life, of artists of institutions uh, and this is why also I support institutions like Studio Voltaire, non-for-profit spaces then and younger galleries, commercial galleries it's important for, for me to give my support to those because you know what's happening now you know? and all these incredible art uh, uh, galleries closing down. I mean this is which puts even more pressure on on uh, non-for-profit spaces because if we lose, the people and the structure that support artists at the beginning of their careers, young or older artists, but at the beginning of their careers, we're left with nothing. Who is going to exhibit at the Tate? Who is going to exhibit in, in these you know, top of the pyramid spaces?
2: And what's your preferred way of buying works of art?
1: Through galleries. Always through galleries. Do you ever buy at auction? Or? One time I bought a, a, a Sylvie Fleury piece. And that's it in twenty years. And and but especially, I want to give support to the galleries. Also, I always look at auction. And and uh, and uh, I was uh, um, also wanted to buy something else years ago, but I didn't go for it. Uh, but you know, and and auctions are really a way of keeping uh, an eye on the market. But definitely, I mean, I, uh, for me, it's through galleries. Also non for profit spaces when they so I I go and uh, and, uh, through the galleries obviously or or maybe just the artists because some of these spaces like Sui Voltaire the exhibit artists don't have any representation so the money goes to the artists and to the space which is amazing art fairs I do very little I do probably three a year which ones do you go to? Uh, I go to Basel in Basel, Fries in London, and I like a small one like uh, uh, the Milano Art Fair, uh, it's called um, Mi Art. I love small fairs and as a matter of fact when I go to Basel for instance, the main reason why I go to Basel is Liste, Liste. No, not the main fair. I mean I go around the main fair, but for me Liste is always a great revelation of uh, younger artists or under recognized artists and uh, and the quality is there because it has improved along the years and it's, I hope it stays the way it is now because it's a good place uh, it is in the moment. It's just very well thought The the galleries bring daring and, and, uh, and different art and, and, and artists that are really uh, not uh, on everybody's lips. So for me it's always a revelation. So when, I, when I started collecting and I moved from New York right away here, I felt, uh, I always felt so supported, you know, I always felt, wow, I became the type of collector because, because I'm being based here in the UK, because people get what I do, I do things differently from other people, and it would have been much more difficult in, in New York, because New York is so conservative, everybody buys the same things, the names, everybody does the same thing, it's all about a big check at the end of the, uh, the year, and when I do project, it's not again about the money. It's, it's about picking your brain and becoming more and more creative in, in, in uh, being impactful. Uh, money is not enough. Ideas create change, not money. And with great ideas, you find great money. And with great money, not necessarily you have great ideas. So I've always felt that here well, in the UK, I, can, I, I could really become the type of creator that I wanted to become.
0: Finally this week, the British artist Peter Blake, one of the key figures in British pop art, has stolen the show at Freeze Masters with a recreation of his West London studio, allowing a glimpse into his tools and techniques, but also his collections, everything from rather sinister puppets to ships, dinky toys and wrestling memorabilia. I spoke to him at the fair. Peter, we're sitting in the recreation of your studio in Freeze Masters, and in fact you're sitting on a sofa which sort of recreates a, a scene from your studio. It does, yeah. Um, I wondered if this feels a little like having your diary read aloud.
4: <laughs> I think once um, it, it could do, but but once I'd accepted I, I would do it and, and gave them gave, gave Robin and Anna carte blanche to do it, I, I handed it over in a way. So in, in a way it's like I'm a visitor as well, you know, so it's it's not an embarrassment, and I think if they'd found anything embarrassing they wouldn't have used it
0: Tell me, how... Is the scene that we're seeing from here? I'm looking across a table and I can see a set square and, a, uh, and scissors which you, which you would use to make your collages. I can see paintbrushes, pencils, and lots and lots of materials. How accurate is that to your actual working conditions?
4: It, it's accurate to the story, but it recreates the situation a bit. I mean, I, I have two tables in my studio, um, and, and these are hired tables to, to recreate that. And they're old, they're old military tables with a, the with a lino top. So, it, so it, it, it's all from the studio, but it wouldn't be quite in this order. Right.
0: Can you tell me about how you use those two tables? What are those two tables for? If you like?
4: Well, I've just reorganised them. I'm making a series of, of very large collages, and, and they were kind of propped on a, on a rather unsteady, um, smaller table. So I cleared everything off them that was stored on them. I, I have the, the larger collages on one of the tables, which is it's twice the size of the collages, so I can move them more easily. So And, and then all the collage material, which was stacked on the table rather like it is here, is now on the tea trolley, and, and, and I know exactly where it all is. So.
0: One of the striking things about the booth is that you've included your collections. Yeah. And this seems to me just as vital as the tools and uh, the technical items that, that with which you make the art, if you like. It, it, it gives us an entry into your imagination. Is that how you see it too? D-
4: yes, I, 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 I think that was a, a, lot of, a lot of the point, was to show the collections. I mean, the, 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 the implication of work is really that things like the scissors and the, it looks as though a collage is in progress. Um, but you you can't really, um, you, the, the, the actual idea of, of work, unless I sat here and, and worked, you can't get that across. So, so it's really about the collections, the, the concept of work, and the look of the studio. Can you tell me how a day begins in
0: your actual studio?
4: It's changed over the years. It used to be that I'd, I'd arrive and, and with a broom, a soft broom, I'd sweep the whole area where I was working. I haven't done that for some years, it, it reminds me. Um, no, but I, I'd go in, I'd probably make a cup of coffee. Um, I, I'd go on the bus, you know, I would have gone on the bus, and make a cup of coffee. Um, think. We should about, say
0: it's in, in West London, is that yeah, right? Yeah, West London.
4: I live in Chiswick and the studio's in Hammersmith, so it was like a ten-minute ride on, on the bus. and And, and even that was... You, it was kind of part of the process in a way. It was getting, it was it was leaving the idea of the house and moving into the idea of the studio. And, and then I would just go and, and and just sit and and work all day, and either go out to a local restaurant or have a sandwich for lunch, and then do another session of work. But once I'm working, I'm I, I'm very
0: steady and consistent. Can you say how those collections might affect the way that you work?
4: Yeah, well, the collections exist because of the work in some case, cases. Some are pure collections, You like the elephants. I've never done any art with them. Um, whereas in another area of the studio, there might be a, a big t- box of, of old driftwood that I, I know at some point I would use to make a sculpture with. So, So the collections work in different
0: ways. Are you conscious when an item is... Developing from a curiosity that you've picked up into a collection, is there is there a, is there a sort of moment where you realise ah oh, I've got I've now got three puppets. This is actually beginning to be a, be a collection.
4: Yeah, I think it's a constant process of, of, of thinking. You obviously when when you're actually painting, it it's, it can be very laborious and you think a lot. You know, so so it's a process of thinking all all, all the time, and, and certainly um, you you. Uh, there might be a couple of objects I mean for instance there's one sculpture called the Surrealist shows Snow White his garden and it's a little figure of a Surrealist that looks like Magritte and then a, 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 a China model of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and, and um, I used one element was a, a kind of found root or something and then then I decided that everything in the garden Should be stuff I'd found on the beach so trees are things like roots that were washed up on the shore old bits of plastic that make trees so so that would you the process would have been to think of the idea and then to start to collect towards
0: making it can you tell me about your own works that are on the stand is it right that quite a lot of them come from your own holdings of your work
4: well, quite a lot are, are in progress. I mean, the the, the rules of of, um, of freeze masters that the work must be before two thousand, and some of this is, is yeah, I mean, the, the the figure on the on the table there that that's very much in progress now. I mean, literally, I'll probably be working on it again next week.
0: Right. So that's that's fascinating. So we are actually seeing a working studio situation. Yeah, no,
4: absolutely. <laughs> I mean, the the two the two sitting on the table there are in progress the the, the 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 black wrestler is in progress, so it very much is is, is um, a, a work in progress
0: And are you a collector of your own work? I know some artists like to eject their work, previous work from their lives so that they can concentrate on the new but do you like to have some of your older things around?
4: Well, it, 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 at one point it was kind of hypothetical anyway because nobody wanted it I mean in the early days, I used to Keep everything, but I suddenly realised that nobody had asked anyway. Um, now, um, for instance, I've just acquired back a, a piece—the piece over there called "Serial." the devil of naked madness. So there's certain things I wouldn't now sell that. Right. You. Know, so, so, certain things I, I, I'll I'll keep, but others. You. Know, I'm I'm a prof- professional. I mean, it's what I, it's the way I earn my living is to make art and let it go. You. Know, so. So you, once you, once you um, decide that, then you' making,
0: you're making something that you know will go. And obviously you're right in the heart of an art fair here and that has been a massive shift in the London art world since you first began making art. What's your view on art fairs? How do you feel about showing in them?
4: Well, well, this is freeze Masters and, and freeze. I think we went to the first three or four. And then it became so difficult. There's a long corridor to get into Freeze. We'd never... You know, the last time we went, probably five years ago, we didn't get beyond the corridor. Your know, People would come and talk, which is very nice. But it, it was just too physically too difficult. Whereas here yesterday, um, in Freeze Masters, we, 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 we've got a, a wheelchair, and uh, Chrissy took me around in a wheelchair. And that was brilliant. It, it makes a kind of... It's a kind of magic that people let you through. And, and so it was, we had a good look round yesterday.
0: One of the striking things about this fair is it allows you to be seen with artists who are, if not friends or um, exact peers, people that worked within your era. Exactly, uh, you know, yeah. so, so there are, like, for instance, Lichtenstein is on the stand, not too far away yeah, from here. Yeah, oh, there's so some
4: incredible pictures. There's a great, I mean, there's a great Steinberg pace, pace gallery have put on the great steinberg show yeah and and, uh, we collect steinberg a
0: little bit got a couple of original steinbergs so you know there's some wonderful things here so have you got your eye on anything in the fair as a as a collector yourself we're
4: we're going back to pace this morning there's some small objects that we might might buy one of going back to look at them anyway great peter thank you so much it's my pleasure
0: And that's it for this week. You can read The Art Newspaper's daily papers produced at the Freeze Art Fairs online at theartnewspaper.com. I hope you've enjoyed this Freeze special. If so, please do subscribe to the podcast, and if you're feeling generous, post a review. And you can also tell us what you think on Twitter or Facebook at The Art Newspaper. See you next week.